Welcome to the Patientless Podcast. We discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly about real-world data and AI in clinical research. This is your host, Kareem Galil, co-founder and CEO of Mendel AI. I invite key thought leaders across the broad spectrum of believers and descenders of AI to share their experiences with actual AI and real-world data initiatives. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode from Patientless Podcast. Today's guest is from the venture capital world. We don't usually invite a lot from the venture capital world, but he has a very interesting background, very interesting portfolio of companies. And I thought this is going to be a very interesting conversation about the future of AI and where is the industry heading. Today's guest have his undergrad from Cornell in biology, and rather than Being in the wet lab today, he actually is in the VC world. And he started as an associate at Lux Capital, but today he's a general partner at Jazz Ventures with very interesting investments such as Garden Health. Today's guest is John Lee, partner at Jazz Ventures. John, thank you for making it to the episode. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Karim. John, what's the journey from biology to the venture capital world? What happened? I ask myself that every single day. I I was studying computational biology in undergrad, but at the same time, I was doing internships more around health systems and around how technology can impact health systems. And the one thing that I noticed was oftentimes there were these really interesting scientific discoveries in the lab, but frequently they, they weren't making it out into the real world for a number of different reasons. And so I was always interested in the application of technology rather than just the basic discovery of science. And so when I was starting to think about what I could do in between undergrad and, and joining a PhD program, I thought venture capital would be an interesting way uh, to explore the things I was interested in on how do you get breakthroughs in science really out there in the world. And he has been over a decade now. I'm probably not going back to grad school anytime soon. But you know, I do think that being in the VC world, it's an interesting opportunity to really push out these core innovations that sometimes do get stuck in the lab. And I think it's one of the most effective ways to do so. Is that what Jazz is investing in? Are you guys investing only in healthcare? What's your thesis around investments at Jazz Ventures? Yeah, so we do have a lot of interest and focus in healthcare, but it's not the only stuff that we invest in. We have a really broad mandate to invest in companies that extend the boundaries of human performance. And so we particularly like looking at breakthroughs at the intersection of digital technology and neuroscience that can impact human experience positively. And so this has led to lots of different companies in our portfolio where we think that things like consumerization can really impact healthcare delivery pretty positively. We think that human and loop AI can augment productivity in lots of really interesting ways. And so we really look at everything from the enterprise to healthcare, to therapeutics, to even consumer products. And so we're, we have a pretty broad mandate, but largely centered around this idea of how do you scale productivity? How do you enhance and expand human potential in a lot of different directions? A lot of these companies have very solid and they spent years basically in the R&D process. How do you guys as a venture capital evaluate the technology or evaluate the secret sauce, say for a therapeutic company, for example? Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, prior to Jazz, I spent about a decade helping to build a firm called Osage Partners, which 
focused on uh, academic innovations and how do you spin them out into companies. And so I'm, I'm very familiar with the topic of, of how do you evaluate technology. And, you know, frankly, the, the simple answer is that most times the technology comes secondary to the team that's actually building and, and, and rolling out the technology. Oftentimes the go-to-market and the form factor that you take out the technology is more important than the technology itself. You know, that being said, occasionally there are moments where the superiority of the technology can be the biggest competitive advantage, and which is actually often the case with things like therapeutics, where there's very strong IP around it. I think it works a little bit differently when you start talking about digital technology. Oftentimes software doesn't have as strong patents around it. And so it's a little bit of a different go to market and, and the, the, pro, the, the packaging of the product matters quite a bit more. I would say that AI is a great example of this. You know, there are lots of different methods out there for how do you get a slightly better neural network? How do you get slightly different algorithms that, that are somewhat better than one another? But in reality, the, the most important thing is how do you package that stuff into a complete product? You just opened a big can of worms now. There's tons <laughs> of questions in my head. Let's start with this. All right. How can an AI company, I hear you, like it's really hard to patent AI today. It's just hard. And once you publish something, it becomes public knowledge already. And anyone can just down, get the paper and, and work on the same model. How can a company build a moat? How can a company actually build a defensible software business? Is it only the packaging? Or is there any kind of network effects you have seen from a customer perspective or from a data perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the classic answer for this uh, would be you want to build some sort of data moat. You want some proprietary way that you're collecting data in which you can feed to your algorithm that nobody else really has the ability to do so. And I think this is particularly relevant when you're talking about neural networks that rely on large sources of data. But, you know, I, I would say that that being said, it's always hard to compete against the, the Googles, Facebooks, Microsoft, AWSs, or Amazons of the world, because they're always going to have more data than you. So it, you know, in the world of neural nets, I actually think it's very difficult for an individual startup to have a significant advantage there. And the advantage often comes from uh, nimbleness and the ability to target markets that are perhaps too small of an opportunity for those large companies to go after and build a moat around kind of brand users features and then build from there. You know, when you talk about things like what you're doing, where you're talking about neurosymbolic systems, a lot of the, the field really isn't quite there yet. And there's an advantage in experience and breadth of experience in being able to design those symbolic systems where only a handful of people will have that perspective or that point of view or the ability to design those systems. And so I think that when we're talking about neurosymbolic systems as opposed to neural nets, there's some higher inherent barriers to entry because uh, you have to be able to design those expert systems, which um, often the expertise is, is limited to just a handful of people in the world. Then at that point, the, the team becomes your one of your main competitive advantages. And the problem that we have seen, and I'm not sure how you've worked with that with your portfolio companies, is the great AI talent tends to gravitate towards the Googles and the Amazons, not for the salary, but because they can get to work with tons of data from day one. And for them is like, hey, I go to a startup, my career is gonna take a downturn because I don't know how much data they have, how much data they can get in the next year or two. Then hiring becomes a really challenging problem for a lot of companies who wanna build, say, neurosymbolic systems, for example. Is that a pattern that you're seeing in healthcare? And if so, like, how did your companies work around that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say that 
I, I think this applies not only to AI, but kind of general engineers in general, right? You're, you're always going to have a lot more safety and a lot more comfort and uh, probably a lot more interest from engineers to work at those large companies because they are a lot more attractive for a number of different reasons. You know, that being said, I, I do think that technology rapidly commoditizes. And so when it comes to neural nets, I would say maybe five years ago, there was probably a pretty substantial AI talent shortage where there were really only a handful of experts that you could draw upon. And there was a lot of competition for those. I would say since then, there's been a lot of commoditization. You can see that because you're no longer seeing the massive seven, eight figure salaries going to AI engineers as it used to five years ago. And so I think naturally technology commoditized. There have been lots of AI platforms that have come out since then that make it a lot easier to work with neural nets, work with deep learning without the need to be able to go and design the algorithms themselves. Really, deployment is the, the key issue there. And so, you know, in reality for healthcare and pharma companies, yes, they're never going to be able to recruit a large number of those algorithm designers, but they're going to benefit from the commoditization of a lot of these technologies. In some ways, I think it actually naturally matches up well with the risk tolerance they have anyways, where you probably want to start absorbing those sorts of technologies once it's prime time. I think that when we get into hybrid AI systems and kind of these novel ar architectures that are starting to emerge, a lot of those have higher day one utility to pharma companies. And I would guess that the engineers that are working on that would want to initially start in pharma or harder problems because their algorithms suit those problems better. And so I actually think that from an AI shortage perspective or a talent perspective, it's one, commoditizing very quickly or commoditizing very quickly. And two, the next generation of problems to be solved by these hybrid AI systems, these engineers are going to gravitate towards those industries and pharma and, and these other health, healthcare organizations are going to benefit from it. So pharma companies are pretty soon are, are, are going to be technology companies, actually. And we're seeing big pharma are aware of that, and they're already recruiting hundreds if not even thousands in, in some occasions, AI engineers and AI talent, because they're quickly realizing that, I mean, Novartis now says we are a data and a pharma company. We're not just a pharma company. But a lot of our audience are not super tech savvy. So we jumped on the neurosymbolic approach terms. Can we explain to our audience what is the difference between neural nets, symbolic AI, and a neurosymbolic approach? And what are the benefits of each one of them? Yeah, you know, I, I like to some, somewhat think of this kind of like from a psychological perspective. So if, if you think about levels of understanding of, say, animals, I would say that there are probably a few different levels and people like Judea Pearl comment on this, where the first is more of a sensory and observation level or an association level where you're taking in insights and you're making conclusions based off of rough correlations that, that you're doing. And so I would say that this is probably where neural nets are today. It's basically saying all the answers are within the data and with correlation, you can find every single answer, which obviously just by saying that statement, there are flaws in that. Um, and because this, a lot of these correlations tend to be spurious, but I think that's where we basically are with neural nets today. A level above that or a tier above that would be the ability to intervene or do based off association observations that you make in the environment. And I think that's kind of where neurosymbolic systems come in, where symbolic systems are these expert systems or knowledge systems where 
you have roles associated with what you view as kind of knowledge in the world. And so you map out these systems of knowledge, and then you apply things like big data or correlative systems um, like neural nets to have a better understanding of what's going on. For example, you could do, what would X be if I do Y? Um, so you can make these types of conclusions. You know, I, th I think the step beyond that, where you start getting to strong AI and, and, and artificial general intelligence is the ability to think counterfactuals or to imagine within a system. And I don't think we're quite there. I, I think that things like neural symbolic systems are really a step for that and, and probably the predecessors of truly strong AI. Would it be safe to say that a neural net learns by statistical weights, like how statistics work, versus a neural symbolic system is leaning more towards learning by facts? Yeah. If, if that is then the case, it seems like the way to go in healthcare is a neurosymbolic system because I find it hard to imagine a physician working with a neural net and getting, hey, this patient, the chances for death is high within the next three months. They will gravitate to why, and then the system is going to fail to say why. And a physician wouldn't feel comfortable working with that. I also find it hard for a pharma executive to basically make decisions based on a system that doesn't really meet the FDA way of thinking about life, which is very factual and very scientific way. Would that be a safe assumption? Precisely. I think that's correct. And but one way to say this is if you look at a thermometer and you see the temperature rise on a classic thermometer, and then you feel that it's getting warmer, you know, a, a neural net approach would be the thermometer or the rising of the thermometer is causing the temperature to rise, or is it the temperature that's causing the thermometer to rise? With a symbolic system, you simply just place a rule and say, you know, it's obvious that the temperature rising impacts the thermometer. You draw that causal inference or that causal relationship, and um, you have much better understanding of what's going on. And so when you're talking about pharma, it is very important to know if the impact um, that you see due to some sort of molecule is a result of the molecule or it's something else. And so those, those causal relationships are really the key to unlocking much more intelligent systems. And you know, it, it not only applies to pharma and healthcare, but it applies really to any industry that has sparse information and that requires true insight and understanding rather than just being able to associate. The question then is like, how can you start crafting those rules? I mean, if we can think of medicine, right? What are the rules of thinking of medicine? It becomes really hard. So how have companies solved that problem? Is the approach to those neurosymbolic systems very rule-based, requires clinicians and experts, or is it a hybrid approach? What does it really mean? Yeah, I think multiple approaches to do this. And, you know, at the core of the question, it becomes comfort with how do you define causality? Uh, because that, that's really the important relation to, relationship to, to suss out here. And so if you take kind of a historical scientific approach, you, you kind of steer away from causality. But in reality, as humans, we probably assign a lot more causality than correlation and, and do it probably correctly in, in most cases. So there are a number of ways to do that. I think one way, if you have experts designing those systems, they have a better sense of what is causal and what is correlative. It's going to be subjective, but you do. You have lots of experts in the design of a system and then you create it. I think that's one way. I think, you know, Bengio had a paper recently about how you could do this within neural nets where you statistically identify and suss out causal relationships or what are kind of perform or like pre-causal relationships. And so I think there is a statistical approach here. There's also, you know, Judea Pearl speaks a lot about how you can define those causal relationships at scale. But 
you know, ultimately, I think this is the great unsolved problem when you're talking about neurosymbolic system. How do you exactly create at scale those structural ways to do things like semantic reasoning or to create those understanding? So you talked uh, and you touched on packaging and go to market. What are the successful models you have seen as an investor for an AI company to go to market, especially in the healthcare sector? What kind of business models and what kind of distribution channels work? Yeah, I mean, there's no a perfect answer here, but I would say that oftentimes it's no different than any other successful company that has a product. I, you know, I view AI as really a, a kind of a feature in the stack. It's a way to make things a lot better, and you really have to focus on kind of the things that you identify, the things that actually improve and, and give you an advantage. And so. If, if there's a meaningful improvement for end user, I, I, I think that that's an appropriate place to really apply AI. It just has to, you know, it just goes back to what is good product design, what is good product. There is a very interesting blog post that Andreessen um, Horowitz had, which is investing in AI is not like investing in software. It's different gross margins, and it's more like investing in a pharmaceutical company where you need to expect two to three, if not even more years of pure R&D no commercial activities before the company has something that is significant enough to take to the market. And a great example is Atomwise. Atomwise now are cutting really big deals. I mean, talking about billions of dollars, very few months. But that took them, what, around four or five years before they come to that breaking point. How do you guys at Jazz think of that? Do you think this is a patient investment or you tend to more do investments when the company passed that R&D threshold? What's your thesis around the timing of investment in an AI company? Yeah, you know, I, I would say part the Andreessen article was, was probably a bit more focused around kind of software tools, so enterprise software and B2B tools that are primarily selling AI as a service. And in, in those situations, the gross margin can be quite low and the years to build it, and rather than kind of a traditional tool may take longer because you need the data gathering portion of it. I think when you compare that to examples like Atomwise and some of these drug discovery companies, you know, interestingly enough, more and more, I think pharma companies have been leaning in on purchasing those services and, and doing drug development deals with companies that don't yet have a ton of data, rather have an interesting approach. And, you know, the thing about Atomwise is in some of these kind of first generation drug development companies is that they're using these neural nets and there's a big hypothesis that this could lead to better ADME or, or better drug selection and candidate selection. And it could be possible, but it's probably more investing around hope than reality. And, and that's partly because just the feedback cycle in pharma is just way too long to actually tell. And so, you know, I, I don't think we have any issues investing in a company that does have uh, a want to spend the time to build something foundational. And then the, the question becomes like, what are the near-term and midway milestones that are indicative of, of future success? And that's slightly different for, for every single company. But you know, for a drug development company, it's really hard just because the feedback loop is just so long. Any interesting investments that you have done lately you want to share with us from your portfolio on today? Yeah. And you know, speaking about drug development and, and something that is kind of very relevant to this conversation, we, we are an investor in a company called Genesis Therapeutics. And in a lot of ways, they're an AI-powered drug development, drug discovery company. And their philosophy is that the, the first generation of drug development companies were using these computer vision algorithms that were really ported over from things like ImageNet. And 
that are looking at molecules at a pixel by pixel level, but don't have a true understanding of what's going on at a physical level. And so the team over there invented something called a potential net, which is using something called a graph convolutional neural net. And it's basically using a physics-based model with knowledge and understanding of how proteins fold and then designing molecules from, from that point. And in a lot of ways, it's very similar to a neurosymbolic approach, just given that you are starting with a, a base rule of limitations or a base set of rules and limitations and libraries, and then optimizing using neural nets to find the ideal molecule. You know, I would say like approaches like that are just really exciting because it is the next generation. And there seem to be some, at least in early data, some real impacts and real positive impacts when it comes to ADME optimization and, and, and selecting a, a much better molecule. How's the investing world going virtual? I mean, take a company like the one you talked about right now, Genesis. This is very sophisticated technology. I'm assuming you need to spend a lot of time with the founders and getting to know more about them and about the tech. How are you guys able to do those kind of interactions today in a world where everything is on Zoom? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's, there's somewhat of a dichotomy happening. I would say in one way, things can move a lot faster because um, the barrier to meeting and, and then also the expectation of, of how well you get to know somebody has gone down. And so if, if the barriers have gone down and then the expectations have gone down, you can essentially work through your deal a lot quicker. And I think we're starting to see this in the case of VC deals. I think that there's probably a few months of hesitation where a lot of firms were not sure what was going on and probably hit pause, but then are realizing that they're being super productive and getting to know lots of companies, spending time with lots of companies. And so I actually think that in terms of operation, it is ideal for the VC world to, to operate on this model. I think the downside is, it's, it's harder to get to know somebody uh, very well and have, I, I would say, a lot more attention and, and time focused on, on a specific relationship. And so if things are moving faster, you have a shorter a period of time to get to know somebody before a deal is done. I think additionally, if you're not meeting someone face-to-face, -face, that there are some clues that you're probably missing from body language that may have an impact later on, but it's unclear what the feedback loop is. I would guess that in any situation like this, fraud probably increases over time. Um, so <laughs> it, so it'll, it'll be interesting how it plays out. You know, I would say that productivity has certainly gone up, but maybe the depth of diligence, the ability of the depth of diligence has gone down. Should we expect another Theranos coming out soon <laughs> from this pandemic? I hope not. Going back to the AI piece of the equation, when do you really think we're going to see a true impact of AI in healthcare. I mean, is it the next five years? You talked about the feedback loops. You said, today we are investing in hope because by the time we know whether those drugs are going to work or not, it's not going to be next week or next year, right? It's very long feedback loops, as you said. So when do you really think we're going to see a different healthcare system, a system that is yeah. driven by artificial intelligence, is driven by data insights rather than by subjective experiences from different stakeholders? Yeah, I think it's happening now. And the reason I think so is I think COVID has really accelerated healthcare innovation by 10 or 15 years, because rather than sticking to models that were slowly failing, you had a realization from lots of providers, pairs and, and stakeholders that the systems need to change now. And the benefit of a lot of healthcare delivery going digital or digitally optimized is that you can inherently collect a lot more interesting data. And so I, I do think that the transition 
is is definitely happening. I I, I think that it, it bleeds into everything from infrastructure, it bleeds into how you keep your records, it, it bleeds into EHRs and, and the standardization of those EHRs, it bleeds into what you can do with the data once everything is standardized, and then new and novel types of information that you can then start analyzing with artificial intelligence. I think it gets quite interesting. And you know, we've seen many different models in telehealth, everything from ABA therapy delivery to uh, primary care, all those things, you're going to start to be able to automate certain parts of it. Uh, and it's a question about how much you can automate, but it's unquestioned that you will have a lot more information to build a lot more interesting things. And so I, I, I think that for companies that are orient, oriented around building systems that can deliver a lot more with, with automation, um, so neurosymbolic companies and, and hybrid AI companies, it, it's such a fascinating time because now you actually have the data and the willingness from stakeholders to move. And so I'm really excited about what's going on. I, I, I think that there's just a tremendous opportunity right now. Speaking about COVID, I always like to end the podcast with asking if you can Zoom call any living person today, who would that be and why? That's a very interesting question. We spoke about him quite a bit. I would say that Judea Pearl is probably someone I would love to talk with in Zoom call, just given that I think a lot of his work around causal reasoning, causal inference is, is going to become very relevant in, in, in the very short term. That was a great choice. I recommend reading a lot of those uh, things because it's just a different way of thinking and just a, a paradigm shift on how you approach AI problems in general. Hey, John, thank you so much for taking the time for this. I'm going to borrow your analogy around the biology of the difference between neuro-symbolic AI and neural nets. But again, thank you so much for taking the time for this podcast. It was a pleasure having you as a guest here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.